welcome to this special edition of the Gin Crisis, The Liberators. I'm here in the beginning to tell you that uh, this is a different kind of format than I usually put out. This is going to be just a verbal journal of mine to retell everything that's happened at the table with my Liberators group from the beginning of the campaign until we were able to start recording our sessions uh, with an audio record. Uh, when we began this game, there were four players. We had Aaron as Korak, we had Danny as Mr. Webby, Eric as Axel, and a friend of ours, Kevin, who played a Goliath named Marcus. And over that year that we played at the table together, we had different players come and go. We ran a couple of one-shots that were used as prequel to the uh, game's start. I'll be taking you through everything that happened in a chronological order rather than as my players experienced it. So with no further ado, let's get to it. Seven years ago, in the city of Ballast, Watch Captain Perrin Hiker had a problem in the form of Ixus, a powerful sorceress. Six strangers, Korak, Webby, Axel, Marcus, Gob, Landis, had just rolled into town a week after her arrival, so Perrin sought to use them to get rid of her. He tasked them with removing a nest of nearby baby purple worms and bringing the babies back to town alive. He claimed that Ixus had already killed the adults, and the city guard of Ballast would take care of relocating the youngsters somewhere safer. The strangers brought the lone baby back with them, not knowing that they also had the mother following close behind. Upon returning to the city, the strangers found all manner of chaos, destruction, and death. All signs pointed to the perpetrator being Ixus, and Perrin proclaimed this far and wide. Behold what Ixus has wrought, he shouted. When the mother purple worm surfaced, Ixus was there to showcase Perrin's lie. The six strangers used magics to get Perrin to reveal the truth, which he proclaimed to the city at large. Ixus was absolved of any wrongdoing, and the baby worm was released back to its mother. Ixus introduced the six strangers to a local spice tradesman, Roblin Vice, and helped them secure a permanent job in the city. A job of travel, adventure, excitement, and with just the appropriate amount of mystery. Five and a half years ago. Roblin Vice's traders were traveling out to Skelgen Hold. The six of them couldn't shake a feeling that something was off as they rode through Princely Pass. The Ebenharth scouts posted at the front end of the pass took their credentials, looked over their cargo, and confirmed that the party was not heading towards Master's Point. There's a plague on, you know, one of the men chuckled as though it was funny. Korak seethed but kept his calm, knowing that he narrowly made it out of the city in time before the quarantine. The soldiers let them pass, and Axel sang a song to calm them all down in attempting to soothe the mood. Within the pass, Everyone felt a strange presence out on the water. Something felt off about it, like whatever it was, was in distress. Shaking off their ill feelings, they looked down to the Sea of Pei, but saw nothing other than a lone galleon making its voyage. Arriving in Skelgen Hold, the group was surprised to learn that 
It was no longer purely an Ebenharth military outpost, but was being crewed by an independent military contingent alongside the Ebenharth soldiers. Nobody had any news for what was coming out of Master's Point, just that the city had been cordoned off completely. The group loaded their cargo of spices and herbs onto a cargo ship, noting the other four vessels being loaded up. The jaunt to the continent of Kaistra was a long haul, so the group settled in. A large convoy of ships like this required an escort. The Tyakota Cutters group had been hired out, led by an orc man who'd done some work with Roblin Vice in the past as well. The party was familiar with his work, but not directly acquainted with him. The journey began relatively quietly. Lots of small talk amongst the crew. Gob and Webby exchanged magic tricks for entertainment, Korak stretched his wings, and Axel told stories to Roran about his childhood growing up surrounded by art. Eventually, some excitement in the form of pirate ships. Fast-moving sloops swept in and dragged off a few of the escort ships. A couple other sloops came in, causing a close-range cannon melee, which was quickly won out in favor of the merchant fleet. Something still felt off, same as when the group had been traveling through Princely Pass. A few days later, Landis ignited a cannon on the bow of the ship that he was on, as a practical joke. The cannonball crashed through the head cutter in front of them, causing a mess of confusion. As Landis was taken into the hold and interrogated, one of the escort ships called out a shipwreck. Gob and Roran convinced their captain to check out the wreckage and pulled a woman from the water. Even with the use of magic, the woman only revealed that she woke up in the water. They had no reason to be suspicious, but Gob was concerned that something was off. He convinced their ship's navigator, a man named Het Mastine, to talk to the captain about keeping the convoy tight, as it felt like a trap lay in store. That night, more pirate ships swept in from both directions. When no alarm sounded from their own ship, Gob ran to check on the captain. Landis heard someone jump overboard and looked down in time just to see the shipwrecked woman back in the water, swimming fast. He dove in after her and found himself surrounded by dolphins. A spell allowed him to speak with the dolphins and they began talking about a great being that was scared and hurt. Gob ran to the captain's quarters and found the man flayed. A dark, arcane rune was inscribed in blood under his hanging corpse. Gob correctly identified the room as a hag's coven commuting circle. A large galleon was now approaching the battle. The bow opened up to reveal a gaping maw as the ship took a bite out of one of the escort cutters. The ship itself was a mimic. Landis swam to it, chasing the woman in the water. Gob was taken over with Roran and Webby in a dinghy, while Korak flew Axel over. A short fight on the Mimic Galleon found the Sea Hags killed. Their magic bind over the Mimic was severed, and the ship belted out one word of thanks to the party, then submerged itself. Four years ago. In the small port town of Havard Cross, the group were unwinding in the Counting Purses Inn. Robel and Vice had given them all an extra week's worth of pay for their work and had asked them to hang out in town for a while to keep their ears to the ground for more potential work of clients. Korak took his leave and locked himself in his room so the others sought bounty work. Noticing a posting for a very rich family name in town, the group met with Nancy Egham. Her manner was crawling with Warforged units, though none of them seemed to have any personality. Nancy told them about her husband, Rotney, and how he disappeared some weeks ago with no trace. She claims to be worried about his safety and offers a Warforged unit of her retinue to help them investigate. Vario is tall and bulky, his blue-white eyes are piercingly bright. 
Their investigation leads them to yelling at more than a few people in town, and that eventually takes them to the sewers. They find Rodney. He's transformed himself into a rat. With a bit of coaxing, they convince him to take a human form, and they talk to him. Rodney expresses fear of his wife, that she's after some kind of power to help her ascend. Vario struggled internally with something before grabbing Rodney and attempting to take him away. The others successfully stopped the Warforge and broke some kind of curse that had been gripping Vario's brain. The group left Rodney in the sewer and decided to confront Nancy. They found a contingent of Warforged outside the sewers, who followed them closely back to the Ecom Manor. Nancy grilled the group about Rodney's whereabouts and his condition, but when they refused to answer, she unleashed a magical fury on them. The Warforged around the manor went haywire, and even after she was slain, they continued to act erratically. The manor was destroyed, but Rodney was free to return. Three and a half years ago. In the wild town of Skraldenmanden, Roblin's spice runners find themselves put up for a nice respite. Skraldenmanden is known for its frequent and unpredictable wild magic surges, which often change the town's aesthetic into some extremely strange images. Most towns butted up against the Skald's forest tend to experience some effects like these, but most of those towns employ ward mages to keep the magic from running rampant along the streets. Skraldenmanden has never had the money for a ward mage, and instead uses these surges as a selling point for bizarre tourism. The town is in an unprecedented month-long phase of remaining as an actual town, instead of phasing into something else. The wild surges that the town usually suffers from has mostly only been affecting small things. Inverting temperatures on certain items, shifting colors across the spectrums, winds blowing in enclosed spaces, things like that. Everyone is enjoying their time around town, right up until all the liquid in town turns to blood. This ruins what was otherwise a promising night in the tavern, and Korak declares he'd rather spend some time communing with his patron if he can't have a drink. He heads up to his room, leaving the others to entertain themselves. The night passes, and everyone wakes up to clear liquids once again. Excited, they go to find Korak, but he's not in his room. Indeed, his room looks untouched. The only thing that stands out is an odd leaf. Asking around town for him yields stories of similar disappearances. Investigating these reveals more strange leaves. Vario, the warforge from the Egam estate, happens across the town while the group is searching, and he joins them. A ranger from the Pathfinders Guild sheds some light on the leaf. It originates from a tree somewhere deep in the Skald's forest. Vario proclaims it will be an easy journey for them, as his magics are all based in the wild surges, therefore he has something of a handle on its power. They walk into the magical forest for some time before finally coming across what appears to be an abandoned structure with a single burning torch. When the torch was put out, all light around them was extinguished, and when the group next opens their eyes, they are in some kind of cell. There's a strange, slightly fleshy, and twisted feeling about the cell, but it's hard to pinpoint. Some investigation of the cell shows it's part of some larger dungeon, so they begin to explore. A few doors and some very confused goblins later, the group comes to a hallway that is covered in oozing slime. As they enter, they each hear some voices, nearly subaural, whispering a name. The name is Ichabar. Nobody knows this name, not even Rorin. Eventually, they come across a small tiefling child who looks extraordinarily familiar to them. The child is weeping and claims to be lost and says something about 
chose wrong. He can't remember his name, and he's describing a sharp pain in the back of his head when he tries to remember. Vario attempts to help the child by dispelling the binding curse, but the child erupts in a spout of blood and gore. This upsets everyone involved, and they resolve to continue to the end of this infernal place. Entering a room darker than darkness itself, all light retreats from them, and a loud, sinister voice booms out something like a stanza. Six stars. He laid claim to six stars. Six corners in the vast nothingness. He will accept nothing less. As the voice fades, the group realize that they are in another room, very similar to the first one that they had found themselves in, but this one is more twisted, more eldritch. More exploration pits them against a drider woman who claims to be from somewhere that is definitely not the world that everyone else is from. Managing to spare the drider woman, who indeed seems not to be in control of herself, the group find themselves in an empty room. A small opening in the wall on the other side shines brightly. Looking through the opening reveals that they are looking down on the Scald's forest from extreme heights. They can even see Scraldemanden in the distance. After a quick fight with another monster, the group finds a teenage tiefling boy. He cannot remember his name, and this time Vario does not attempt to help. The boy just murmurs something about chose wrong. They enter another dark room and hear that stanza about six stars once again. Waking once more in a third, more twisted, almost pulsating room, the group decides to make a run for the end of this place, passing a room filled with dead bodies and watching their Pathfinder guide slit his own throat, the group find themselves face to face with Korak. Although he can't remember much, he reassures the party that this is likely his fault. He's calm and relatively collected, but when he says, Ichabar chose me, did he choose wrong? The group steps up to reassure Korak that no, Ichabar chose right. If this Ichabar, whoever he is, chose Korak, then it was the right choice. Hearing this, Korak's body shrivels up to reveal a dead elven body. Terrible voices ring out in the chamber, shouting things like, We'll see, and prove it! The room disintegrates around them, leaving the group standing at the center of a six-pointed star. Korak arrives again, but as they touch him, he begins to turn into an arcanist mind flayer. A long battle ensues, finally seeing the destruction of the strange floating fortress, and the party collectively falling to the ground in the middle of Skraldenmanden. Eventually, the mind flayers are brought to their death, and Korak's body falls to the ground as well. An echoing voice speaks from the shadows. Two years ago, Roblin Vice sends the entire party in as an escort for a relatively small shipment of goods to the affluent city of Bayshire. It's been two years since their journey to Skelgenhold, and some changes have been made to that region of the world. Princely Pass is now only guarded on the eastern side by the Ebonhearth military. But the western entrance is guarded by soldiers wearing the colors of Master's Point. They let the party pass unhindered and actually have a jovial feel to them. Entering Bayshire, the group is immediately taken to the port to offload their goods. The stevedores begin work and the wharf supervisor asks the group to hang around for the next few days while the shipment is confirmed. No problems there for anyone, it's a nice town. Looking over the bounty board, they see a lot of postings for missing children. Checking in with a local orphanage shows that they also have a large group of children who have gone missing. 
Asking around some more reveals a nobleman's sort who seems to be talking rather flippantly about the missing children. When stopped and asked some questions, Gob and Korak correctly call him out for having some kind of hand in the whole thing. He shouts at them before launching an eldritch blast at them all and vanishing. The party collects a list of missing children and heads to a nearby wooded area, rumored to house a witch. They find a cabin surrounded by wolves, panthers, reptiles, and all sorts of other exotic animals. The animals allow the group to enter the cabin, where they find an old, kindly woman. When asked about the missing children, she proudly declares that none of them are missing, just unwilling to return. The party begins to act a bit hostile toward her, which causes all the exotic animals to react to them with ire. Gob and Landis finally slot themselves between the hotheads of the group and the old woman, promising that nothing bad will happen. Eventually, things settle down and the witch explains that while there are missing children, many of the children on the group's list are here. The witch tells a tale of a warlock living even deeper in the woods, and the description of the man matches the weird nobleman back in the city. The group heads further in until they find a strange cabin. There's smoke pouring from it and screams can be heard coming from inside. The group charges in. Surprisingly, the building's not actually on fire but arcana checks show that it's some kind of strange temporal disturbance. A winding maze of paths inside the building leads the group to unknowingly split up. When the lights come on, both groups are standing on opposing sides of the room, one on the ceiling, one on the floor. Everyone thinks quickly to figure out who is who, and when it is revealed that there are doppelgangers in the chamber, Landis loses his composure completely. It takes three people to pull him off the final corpse. In a final chamber, the group finds written plans, a summoning spell, and a planar rune. As Gob inspects the rune, it flashes and a portal opens up to some other plane. Looking through the portal reveals a large invasion force of Githyanki. As the group scarpers, the Gith begin flooding in through the portal. Running back through the Warlock's Tower, they happen across another set of rooms. One has planning diagrams and plans regarding something that happened at Master's Point the other room holds a bunch of children, huddled together and scared. The tower begins to burn as the Githyanki portal destabilizes without the warlock's magic to sustain it. The group manages to get the children to safety while grabbing some of the plans regarding Master's Point. Korak and Gob magically lock the door and place a ward around the tower. The whole thing burns down. The Gith are screaming from the inside as it comes down. Before heading back to report all that happened, Landis takes his leave to stay with the witch in the woods. Her knowledge of nature and shape-shifting intrigues him, and it befits his silent posture. A few months ago, Roblin Weiss is in his office detailing a large shipment of goods to go to Edgemire. Axel, Korak, Webby, and Marcus are set to meet up with Rorin and Edgemire after the delivery. Roblin pulls Korak aside and asks him to make an extra delivery in Edgemire. One Professor Trisgore of the College of the Magi. Roblin hands Korak a small wooden box with an ornate symbol burned onto it. The clasp is sealed by wax. A quick stop at the bounty board produces a missing person report for a man named Garrett Klein. The note looks like it had been hastily put up, but mentioned that his family was relocating to Edgemire, and to contact them there with any information. Getting on the road, none of the travelers know anything about this. The journey is largely uneventful, until the crew comes across a river troll outside of Scrawledmanden. Dispatching of it, they find the wreckage of what looks like to be some kind of envoy and escort. 
Marcus picks a necklace out of the rubble and puts it on. Entering Skraldemanden, which is currently rendered entirely from different kinds of clocks, the group is cheerfully greeted by Jarl Wishwater. Asking about Garrett Klein, she puts forward that he did indeed have work in town, usually meeting up with some strange mage types or another. A Pathfinder helpfully informs them that Garrett was last seen entering the Skald's forest. Following after him, the group eventually begins to feel as though they're being watched, hair standing on end kind of being watched. They stumble across a cave that definitely does not appear as a natural formation. Entering the cave, it's immediately obvious that some sort of ritual is taking place, as a chanting can be heard. Walking further into the cave, there's a scuffle, and Marcus is the only person to resist having binds put on himself. The others disappear around him as shadows grab them, and Marcus hears shouting from further down the passage. Korak is faced by a red-robed mage holding the box that Roblin gave him. The man is shouting at him, How do you know about this? Marcus enters the room and a fight ensues. Four of the five mages are killed, but the one holding Korak's box is spared. That intensity of feeling like they're being watched increases exponentially, and the party leaves the ritual chamber to witness a beholder bearing down on them. Its maw is open, its tongue is lolling. They run and outpace it, but only barely. The tunnel collapses behind them as a contingent of pathfinders haul them to safety. On the hike back to town, the prisoner mage asks Korak if he even knows what that box really is. It's the only interaction they have with the man until the middle of the night when he wakes them all up from his screaming. Korak looks into the man's mind, only to find him screaming there as well. He's clearly in some kind of trance, and eventually Korak gets the words out of him, The mists will come! But nothing more. Webby suggests killing the man and eating him right there. Getting back into Skraldenmanden, which is now uh, upside down, the whole town is suspended from a plot of earth hanging above the ground. Jarl Wishwater confirms that the man is indeed Garrett Klein. She asks that the group take him to Edgemire with them, as Skraldemanden is not equipped for holding prisoners long term. Besides, the man's family's there and it would help allay their concerns if they could at least visit him. Getting on the road, Korak presses Klein about the box and calls Klein a necromancer. This actually produces a reaction from the man saying that his work was sanctioned by the gods. He prompts Korak to look into the box and behold what is there. Korak obliges him, cracking the wax seal and finding an obsidian arrowhead that is a radiating heat. Garrett tells Korak that the object is a djinn. When Korak asks him why the djinn forged the object, Klein corrects him by saying, The object is the djinn. A red dragon flies overhead, and a thousand gold coins rain down on the group, having fallen from its underbelly. They make a stop in Evenhearth after traveling about a week, and here they find bounty postings. There is a standing bounty of 10,000 gold for bringing in Jarl Raylene Kawahara of Master's Point, and 5,000 for her Warforged Thane, Trep. Beyond that, there's a call for Arcane users to help open up the main trade route from some kind of curse in the Whisper Marsh outside of Edgemire. Eventually, they head out of town after noticing some rough types had been eyeing their cart. Not wanting to get mugged, they get the let out. In their rush, they run straight into a giant spider's web. Webby listens as the angry spider curses them for their rudeness, so Marcus hunts a deer as a way to pay reparations. This offer is accepted, and the spider leaves them be. Coming into the Whisper Marsh, they come across a strange set of spells. Webby is able to dispel most of it, but there's one peculiar item, a mirror. As they look into the strange mirror, it explodes, and the sky turns a blood red. A heavy fog rolls in and burns them all as though it were acid. The fog suddenly dissipates, and a blue chaff fills the air around them. When that blinks out a moment later, the earth begins to heat and explode around them, and a massive earthquake shakes the ground. 
Such a strange occurrence, and the party heads into the city proper. Obviously, people are scrambling to maintain order after the earthquake, but for the most part, everything seems to be alright. Looking for something to do after dropping off their cargo at the docks, they are accosted by the same group of ruffians they had seen in Ebenharth. They manage to subdue them without killing anyone. Feeling good about themselves, they are then stopped by a grouping of official-looking people who present no credentials but assure the party that Klein can go with them by the High Cleric's command. Klein is taken by the strangers, and the group heads to find his wife to let her know. What? What clerics? This town doesn't have a clerical temple! Trying to cover up what could be a big mistake, they tell Klein's wife that they'll figure it out and report back. They end up visiting a temple built to Garrisil, and then catching a drink in a local tavern. Axel is having fun playing music for everyone, but eventually they wind down and decide to find an inn for the night. When they go to leave, Axel is the last one out, and the door slams on his face before he can make it from the building. Smoke fills the tavern, and when the group charges back in, they find everyone unconscious. Axel is missing. Marcus tracks the trail to a back alley, where they open a storage shed to find two identical Axels. Webby correctly deduces that one is a doppelganger, and Marcus knocks him out. They interrogate the doppelganger, who introduces himself as Doc. Doc admits that he'd been following them ever since Scraldenman and trying to figure out what they were doing with Klein. After Klein was taken by those officials and nobody stopped them, Doc figured he needed to act to get some answers as to why. They all agree it was a strange thing and resolve to find the man again. On their way, they stop at the College of the Magi. They find a series of puzzles leading into Trizagor's office, the last of which opens a trapdoor to a long ladder of some kind in the basement. Marcus heads down first, and Webby jumps on his shoulders. Doc jumps on Webby's shoulders, and Korak follows suit. Axel is the only one besides Marcus to use the ladder like a sane person. Professor Trisgore is small, even for an elf. Korak hands him the box with a djinn object. Trisgore explains that he's building a device that will hopefully free the djinn from their physical bondage. He expresses a desire to speak with a living djinn, and asks if the party can accommodate him in finding the final arcane pieces he needs to finish the machine. When they mention Garrett Klein, Trisgore laughs and says he actually has custody of the man, and that he's going to cure his necromancy, and use his help with the device. This seems to satisfy the group, and they inquire about the fetch job. Trisgore details the three items. One part, the arcane core, is still being forged by the High Cleric in Ebenharth. Another part, the arcane oscillator, is in Cloudhenge, waiting to be picked up. And the final part, the arcane capacitor, was actually stolen by Fear Free Army Revelers just three nights prior, a small group of kobold. Finalizing their new contract with Trisgore, he sends word along to Robon that the party will be unavailable for spice running anytime soon. Roran Narabil meets the rest of the group outside of Edgemire, and they continue on toward Cloudhenge. They begin passing massive amounts of wounded soldiers. The Ebenhearth Stormers are heading back to their home cities, wherever that may be, while the wounded Fear troops are headed back to Edgemire to be shipped across the sea in favor of fresh bodies. Webby and Roran make some time to help the wounded. Making camp off the main road one night, the party is disturbed by the sound of hoofbeats. Someone is riding hard back towards Edgemire. Then they hear the telltale sounds of a displacer beast blinking towards them. They scare the creature, which flees. Axel and Marcus track it down, which keeps them all running all night long. Early in the morning, the beast leads them into an encampment of soldiers bearing the standards of Master's Point. A long fight ensues that ends with Webby skinning the displacer beast and the party burning all the tents in the area before realizing that the contingent that they had just fought was only an eighth of what this camp was built to hold. 
They run for concealment before the other soldiers return. Whoever these people are, they have to be some kind of scouting group, as Master's Point doesn't control any territory this far north. After getting some sleep, the party never noticed any of the other soldiers returning to the burned camp. Figuring the smoke must have given it away, they head out to do some scouting of their own. They find a large rock formation that has torches set all around it and some patrolling soldiers. Doc shapeshifts into a Master's Point soldier and brings the rest of the party in under the guise of being his prisoners. He is scolded for bringing prisoners to the fallback location, but they are taken in to speak with Captain Kawahara. The rock formation is concealing a small cave system, and the party finds very quickly that there is only one entrance or exit. The captain introduces herself as Chairin Kawahara, the daughter of Jarl Raylene. Marcus is spotted wearing the pendant he found near Squaldenmanden, and Chairin begins accusing him of killing her brother Kerfi, a peaceful envoy sent to talk things over with the Jarl of Ebenharth. Marcus gives the pendant back to her, stating he did no such thing. The whole group notices a second displacer beast in the far cavern. It appears to be guarding a little girl no older than six. When pressed about the girl, the captain becomes tight-lipped. A short fight has all the soldiers subdued and Chairin begins running for the little girl. Roran and Doc knock her out and ask the little girl if she is scared and wants to come with them. The girl is clearly terrified and she takes Korak's hand. More soldiers begin pouring into the cave, and with an incredible feat of animal kindness, the displacer beast blinks them all out of the cave. With Doc still dressed up as a Master's Point soldier, the party manages to feign their allegiance to the Master's Point army, which gets them a set of horses. Chairin comes flying out of the cave and shouts, They have the girl! The previously kind displacer beast snarls and circles around the little girl, putting itself between her and the party, but does not attack. The group runs as fast as they can, hoping to outrun the scout contingent on their stolen horses. Running west towards Fort Jonin loses their scout tail rather quickly, and they make camp about two or three miles outside of the fort. Waking in the morning, the sound of hoofbeats draws their attention. They see a lone Master's Point rider being chased by a large cavalry strike force of the Fair and Fear Free Army. Korak, thinking about that little girl and remembering his past in Master's Point, convinces the others to go save the lone rider. A clash with the cavalry lends a helping hand to the lone rider, but a horseback archer fires an arrow that connects with her, knocking her off her horse. Dispatching the rest of the cavalry, the group heads over to find Chairin Kawahara on the ground with an arrow in her heart. A black venom can be seen spreading through her body as she racks with coughs. She grabs Korak and pulls him close. Save her! Take her home! And then she dies. Axel plays a quiet song as he reaches out magically until he hears a whimpering child. She asks where her sister is and if it's safe to come out of hiding. Axel assures her that she will be safe and that her sister asks them to take her home. They find her hidden in a hollowed out tree. She introduces herself as Ziada Kawahara, the youngest of Raylene's three children. Ziada explains that she snuck along with the scouting group almost a week ago, hiding in side bags carried by the displacer beasts. The large tentacled cats took care of her, bringing her food and drink when the others weren't watching. Eventually, after the scouts were well past Ebenharth's lines, Ziada was found by one of the lieutenants. Chairin had been trying to find a way to get her home without letting Ziada fall into Ebenharth's hands. Axel gently explains to her that Chairin is dead, and that they're going to get her home. She holds her tears back and resolves to go home with the group. Their only available line of travel, however, takes them right through Fort Jonin, currently being used as a staging ground for the Ebenharth and Fair and Fear armies. 
Fort Jonan is, of course, crawling with enemies to Kawahara, so the party really closes ranks around Ziada. As they arrive, Gauntlet, the Ebonhearth Jarl, and Warmaster of the Armies is shouting triumphantly, Today we have accomplished a great victory! He holds Charon's head up above the crowd. Today we slew Raelene's daughter! The crowd explodes into cheers and Korak covers Ziada's eyes. They spend the night, and Doc spends some time sabotaging a couple of carts with black powder and oil. When the morning comes, a commanding officer grills the group on what they're doing at the fort, given they aren't members of either army. They explain that they're looking for a few soldiers, the ones who took the arcane capacitor. The commander confirms that this group had been sent ahead to Cloudhenge already, and assured that, despite the city now being shut down, they would be able to get in contact with them soon. Webby and Doc are both caught trying to spy on Gauntlet, but manage to convince him that they were just lost. Doc scoops some important troop movement maps. Gauntlet is overheard talking about their hard push for Cloudhenge and plans to move troops out by the end of the day. The group leaves the fortress and Doc sets off his traps, causing a huge delay on Gauntlet's march for Cloudhenge. A quick stop off at Garrisil's Cup, a stagnant and festering lake, sees the group drowning a hydra. <laughs> yes, you heard me correctly. They found a way to drown a hydra. Korak enters the lake and hears some voices that sound divine. They are arguing with each other about the djinn. At some point, one voice brings up the name Ichabar. A deafening shriek rends the sky at this point, and everyone loses consciousness. When they wake up, they are in the back of a wagon. A huge disorientation is over everyone, but eventually they recognize that the cart is being driven by Vario, the Warforged, with Gob, their illusion wizard, sitting nearby. Ixis is tending to Ziada, fussing over her. When she sees that everyone is awake, she asks them what's been going on. They recount everything for her and mention that absolutely they have to stop in at Cloudhenge. She's not very keen on this idea, but agrees. They make it to Cloudhenge by nightfall. Vario and Ixis volunteer to stay with the wagon and watch over Ziada while the rest of the group heads in. Preparing for a siege, Cloudhenge has closed its gates, but Korak knows a way to get in through the sewers and promptly takes the group that way. Asking around a bit reveals that indeed a cobalt group went into the mines earlier that day. The city is in full swing of battle preparation, and the chaos allows them to pass unmolested into the mines, which, interestingly enough, bears Axel's family name. Doc shapeshifts into the form of the commanding officer they had met in Fort Jonan earlier, intending to trick the cobalt into giving up the arcane capacitor. They successfully sneak up on the cobalt group, surprising one in a deep mine shaft. Doc fails to convince him of his disguise, so Marcus knocks him out. They take the capacitor from him and are surprised by two more kobold entering the chamber. These kobold are holding curious little items and had been chatting excitedly about having found them in the mine. Doc convinces them to hand the items over and Webby identifies them as gin objects. They ask the kobold where to find the arcane oscillator, but the lizards shrug and say that it must have been taken to Master's Point ahead of the impending siege. Bringing along the rest of the kobold, the group is ambushed by a boulette in the mines, and it is then that Doc and Marcus throw the lizards out as bait. By the time they make it back to the entrance of the mines, the Ebonhearth forces have already breached the walls. A green dragon is breathing noxious gas into the mines. Gob identifies that the dragon is being forced against its will to attack. They manage to kill its captors and the dragon immediately flies away. Things are starting to get really bad and the party moves to leave. That's when they notice Kitch, the strange nobleman warlock they met two years prior in Bayshire, is calling orders to the siege engines. 
Gob calls down a meteor storm on him, slamming him into the mountainside, and everyone leaves as fast as they can. As the wagon rides away, there is a terrifying shriek, like the sound of a thousand panes of glass shattering all at once. In the distance, wings of blades rise from the smoke above Cloudhenge. The Shrike has risen. The party does not stop riding. They pass right by Hallohan, correctly taking stock of their supplies on the wagon and finding that with minimal brakes and taking shifts driving the cart, they can make it in just under three days. Around the time they reach Princely Pass, Axel has a heavy sense of foreboding. He meditates on it for a while, before coming to the realization that he can no longer hear the song of Waskell. Or rather, he can hear a reverberation of the song, as though hearing the hum of lute strings after they've been strummed for the final chord. By no means would Axel consider himself a religious man, but he'd always taken for granted the ability to hear that song. The song that gives the world its color. The song that brings beauty to a smile. The song that produces freezing chills when listening to someone recant an incredible story. Sensing the foreboding in the cart, Chiron Kawahara is dead, Cloudhenge saw the Shrike rise above it, a civil war is consuming their home, Axel decides not to burden the party with this information. Instead, he plays a calming song of his own, hoping to ease everyone's stress, even just for a moment. Arriving in Master's Point, Ixis wildshapes into her direwolf form and runs off to make sure Raylene is in the hold before the party arrives. They are stopped at the gates by a pair of guards, who are concerned about the party coming in with a large wagon. When Gob announces that they have Raylene's only living daughter, Ziada, with them, the guards move closer and insist that they escort young Ziada up to the hold with them and the party can go. A short but decisive scuffle finds Shrike Temple totems on the guardsmen's bodies. Traveling through Master's Point is eerie, as almost nobody is around town. Korak comments that the plague must have killed more people than he originally thought. They meet another set of guardsmen outside the hold who explain that Master's Point is in its Week of Rest holiday, an observance born from surviving the terrible plague some seven years prior. During this week, families take turns caring for one another and whole communities make sure that everyone is provided for. The guardsmen ask what their business is with the Jarl, and when the group mentions Ziada, the guards immediately call an escort and take the party into the hold. Getting inside, everyone notices some kind of abjuration spell wash over them, but it's not enough to bother them. Ziada and Raylene are reunited quite tearfully, despite her rather badass reputation, and the party is thanked profusely. She asks that they give her until the next day with her daughter before they can all sit down and discuss a reward befitting their deed. Korak is stopped by someone wearing a vaguely familiar sigil. This person mentions Tali Voss, Korak's ex-girlfriend. Korak cringes and waves the man off, but doesn't say anything more about it. They are shown to a nice inn and put up on Raylene's tab. Here they meet a strange tabaxi man named Guster with Heart. He sells them some magic items and generally shows them a fun time. The next day, the party is shown to Raylene's advisory room, and they are told that she will be in shortly. There is a man in the room who is as flawless a specimen as you might ever see. He introduces himself as Sanagar, an advisor to Raylene, although not just during wartime. He explains a bit about himself. He's old, one of the oldest living people on the planet who is not a god or a demigod. He's one of the last living people of his species, the Yuan-Ti, who are better known around the world as the Corianid. His species is all but extinct now, thanks to a centuries-long war that only recently wrapped up. He remembers the Jinn as a free people, and he recounts some stories of their beautiful and ancient cities. He talks about the night that their greatest city was destroyed, 
and the forest, now known as Skald's Forest, grew up around it almost overnight. He takes a breath to continue on, but Raylene enters the room and stops him, saying that such dour talk should be suspended for now, as this is a happy day. She warmly thanks the party for bringing her youngest daughter back to her safely. She asks about her other children, Chayrin and Kerfi, and nods her head sadly as the group tells her of their respective demises. Talk turns back to the djinn, and Raylene explains that she has a cache of djinn objects that have helped her turn the tide of the war, despite her armies being far smaller than the combined might of Ebonhearth Stormers and the Farinfir Free Army. Sanagar speaks on the djinn some more, and when Ichabar's name is brought up, he explains that Ichabar is likely coming to this world in order to consume the djinn, as their well of magic runs very, very deep. Korak talks about his relationship with Ichabar, and how Ichabar is technically his patron. Sanagar explains that Korak's connection with Ichabar is because of his heritage, a demigod, son of Garasil. This shocks everyone into silence, so Sanagar continues about the djinn and how if there were only a way to free them from their prisons. The party snap out of their silence and tell Sanagar and Raylene of Professor Trisgor and his arcane machine. They show them the arcane capacitor and explain that the machine needs three parts for it to function properly. Raylene smiles and produces the arcane oscillator that they had found missing from Cloudhenge. She gives it over and wishes the liberators of the djinn put it to good use. It is now that Raylene pays out the party in excess of 60,000 gold pieces for the return of her daughter. She recognizes that Ebenharth has a standing bounty on her head and that the party could have collected one-sixth as much or less just for turning in Ziada to Gauntlet's grasp. She rewards them each as though they had earned that bounty individually, and then she offers herself for one favor from them, each. Whether information or an opportunity, their choice. Over the next few days, some of the liberators have business come up. Marcus takes his reward and informs the party of his decision to go looking for information on his brother. Axel receives a letter from a Spartak college with news of the Fantark's death, and he leaves as well. The last four remain and eventually decide to head back to Edgemire, hoping to swing in at Ebenharth and pick up their final piece for Trisgor's machine. Raylene informs them that they have a ship already in dock, and he's very excited to see you all again. They are taken back to the docks and shown a galleon ship which is grinning at them. Webby dubs the ship Galley, and the Liberators step foot aboard to begin the next leg of their journey. This concludes everything in chronological order from the beginning of the Jin Crisis campaign until the point where I moved away and we started recording over the internet. I hope you all have enjoyed this. I certainly enjoyed writing it.